0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu.
1: From WHYY in Philadelphia, this is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Dave Davies. Today, actor Timothy Oliphant... He's played a rock band's road manager, the husband of a flesh-eating zombie, and a sexy drug dealer in the cult classic Go. But he's best known for portraying two lawmen in cowboy hats, Sheriff Seth Bullock in the HBO series Deadwood, and modern-day Deputy U.S. Marshal Raylan Givens in the FX series Justified. That franchise has been revived in a new series, Justified City Primeval. We recorded our interview before the actor strike began. Also, we'll hear from author and journalist Donovan X. Ramsey. His new book is When Crack Was King, A People's History of a Misunderstood Era. As part of his research, Ramsey interviewed hundreds of addicts, drug dealers, families, and community members of cities deeply impacted by the crack epidemic. That's coming up on Fresh Air Weekend. Our first guest, actor Timothy Oliphant, has performed in dozens of roles in film, television, and theater. He's best known for playing two iconic lawmen, Sheriff Seth Bullock in the HBO series Deadwood and a subsequent film, and Deputy U.S. Marshal Raylan Givens in the FX series Justified, which earned Oliphant a Primetime Emmy nomination. Among his many other roles, he starred with Drew Barrymore as the husband of a realtor slash man-eating zombie in the Netflix comedy series Santa Clarita Diet. Trust me, it is funny. And he played the tour manager of a rock band in the Amazon Prime series Daisy Jones and the Six. In Justified, Oliphant's character, Deputy Marshal Raylan Givens, was reassigned to his native eastern Kentucky, where he chased a bunch of colorful criminals for six seasons, some of whom he'd known since childhood. That series ended in 2015, but it has been revived in the new FX series Justified City Primeval, which, like the original, is based on the writings of Elmore Leonard. In the new series, Givens, now in late middle age, finds himself in Detroit, dueling with a sociopathic criminal in a distinctly urban setting, with his 15-year-old daughter in the picture. I should note that our interview was recorded before the actor's strike began. Timothy Oliphant, welcome back to Fresh Air. Good to have you. Thank
4: you, Dave. It's good to be here. I feel like I got a little taste of what an obituary might sound like for me when you first started. I was like, is, is this what it's going to be like? Well, you'll <laughs> never saying. know, I think. It will hopefully be That's longer what they say. and richer. That's what they say. <laughs> the other thing I heard there, which is the the self-involved neurotic actor, I was like, did he just say late middle age? I was like, why? What, what, what's with the adjective late middle age? I don't
1: know if you're fifty. I was like, is isn't right. middle age
4: enough? Yeah, well, the character's in his fifties, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, whatever. Okay,
4: that's right. The character is. Right. I don't know how they. Got, I'm in, I'm still thirty five, but they aged me up for the role. That so is, it's all right, good.
1: Right. I'm I'm glad you're hanging in there in your thirties. Um, <laughs> I have to tell you, Justified. I mean, the original series, which ran six seasons, is one of my favorite TV experiences ever. I look forward to watching all of those seasons again. Um, you know, you chasing all these colorful, complex criminals in the hollers of Harlan County. Was that a really special experience to you, too? Well, first, thank you. I I appreciate you saying so. I
4: We had a ball making the show. You know, it's just one of those jobs. It was rarely a day
1: you left the set where you didn't think, well, that was cool. You know, it was just always cool. Now, I see that you are an executive producer in the revival of the series, which is set in Detroit. Um, I know that you had a, a part in Quentin Tarantino's movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And I read that a conversation with him in somehow moved this idea forward or, or planted the seed. Put some wind in our sails.
4: Uh, certainly put some wind in our sails. You know, we the – the. The writers and I, we've always been in touch since we wrapped the show, the original show, and we've always talked about, what do you think? You know, is the time right? You know, do we want to take another swing at this thing? And if so, who's got an idea? (laughs) (laughs) You know? Um, And everyone's busy. Everyone, you know, the the thing going against it, it's like any kind of reunion, uh, you know, in life. It's just everyone's life is getting in the way. So getting us all together and coming up with the the seed of an idea was probably really the trickiest part. And I, I had an idea that maybe we could just go back to Elmore, you know, grab one of He doesn't, we've already used all the Raylan material, but maybe there's some other material there that, you know, might lend itself to the conversation, you know. And City Primeval was, it felt like a bit of a layup. It was so close to our kind of narrative. And I thought, you know, maybe we could strip this for parts or use the bones of it, and it would start the conversation. And I ran it by Quentin on the set of um, Once Upon a Time. And he liked the idea. I mean, he's a huge Elmore Leonard fan. He was a huge fan of that book. He considered making that movie at one point in his career. So not only did he like the idea, he had ideas. You know, so he was am- It was fantastic. So that just sent me back to everybody
1: with a, a great deal of enthusiasm, which is, you know, we're going to do this. Well, let's listen to a clip from the new series. You are in Detroit in this series, kind of by chance. And you end up getting assigned to assist the Detroit police on a case involving the attempted murder of a judge. And this is a scene where you and some really gung-ho Detroit cops have identified a suspect, have stormed into his house, and he has fled to the basement and slammed the door, and his mom is standing by. And the Detroit cops are inclined to kick the door down and and end this by force. And and as we'll hear in the end of the scene, they kind of do that. But first... We hear you as Deputy uh, Marshal Raylan Givens. Just try to try to talk to the suspect who's behind the door. Let's listen.
0: Hey, stay back! I'm not messing around.
4: Don't, Barry. What
5: are you doing? I,
0: I just I just need to figure it out. Hey, Barry. Not coming down here.
4: No one's coming down there. All right, listen to me. You don't know me. I'm Deputy U.S. Marshal Raylan Givens, and I can assure you no one's coming through this door. Yeah, you damn right there, Don't need to talk tough, I'm just trying to help.
5: Jesus himself couldn't help him. My son's going to hell in a handbasket. Well, shut up,
4: Mom! What does that what even mean? mean? It means you need to calm your ass down. Just talk to me, Barry. Come on, face to face. Give me one
0: good reason. I
4: should do anything you say! Because up until now, no one has been hurt. Except a Cadillac CT6. But some of the agents and officers up here, Barry, especially the ones by the toaster oven, are a little hungry and a lot irritable. So if I was you, and I was sincerely interested in saving my ass, I'd open the door, talk this out, and end it while I'm still breathing. Come on, Barry, what do you say? Head to the SUV out front instead of the afterlife?
0: Okay, okay, stand, stand down, I'm going to need a few things, if you expect me to do- oh.
5: What the hell is wrong with you people?
2: Oh my God, you broke my nose!
4: Not sure that was entirely necessary, but okay.
1: Hey, that's how we do things in Detroit. And that is our guest, <laughs> Timothy Olyphant, in the new series, Justified City Primeval. Yeah. Huh. Not sure that was entirely necessary. Uh, Marshall Raylan Givens always keeping his cool. Um, in this series, you're, you're dealing with a criminal, uh, Clement Manziel, played by Boyd Holbrook, who is uh, – he's a truly malevolent character, uh character. But his lawyer uh, is a woman that you end up dealing with in some interesting ways, and that probably complicates Raylan Givens' life and the story.
4: You know, Raylan has a way of making things a little more difficult for himself. Um, And then probably because that unconscious mind, he kind of wants to deal with those issues more than he wants to deal with others. I will say that lawyer is played by the incredible ingenue Ellis and uh, getting her on board was just a huge win for us for the story and for the audience and just a wonderful performance and Boyd same thing uh, I, the cast really just was incredible I missed so many of the original cast it was it was um really missed them um on the other hand we got we got really lucky with with everybody that got involved in this one and actors came in, and these new characters came in, and it was nothing like our show. Um, no one we'd ever seen before, and yet every day we'd left the set, and you're like, it feels like our show. You know, it feels like our show. We're in a different world. we got all these different characters, and yet, I mean, driving around with Victor Williams, he plays one of the detectives, the banter between us, um, I just thought, this just feels like... Did, are we sure we didn't shoot this in the previous uh, series? Because it, it it feels like home, you know? Right, right.
1: Now, it, now, was, it was cool. Now, the Raylan in, in this series has a complication, which is that his 15-year-old daughter happens to be with him. Uh, he didn't plan it. He ended up in Detroit kind of by chance. And she is with him, and she is a curious and willful child played by your own daughter Vivian, right? How did this come yeah. about? Yeah.
4: How <laughs> did that work out? it really was the best thing about the gig for me personally. It was working with my daughter. It was just a joy. Um, I didn't see it coming, us working together. And, and this is how it went. I knew acting was in the picture. She had always wanted to act. You know, when she was, when our kids were little, she's the youngest of three and we used to take family videos. She was the only one who asked to see playback. So we kind of saw this coming. Um, and, she was in college she's a singer songwriter she was at the berkeley college of music and we were shooting this over the summer we were talking about what her plans were going to be for the summer and my wife said isn't there a part in your show for your daughter <laughs> and i said isn't she supposed to be you know around vivian's age and i said what do you think she said you know bring it up to her and if she wants to audition give her give her let her have a swing
1: at it so rest is history um she did great. Yeah, yeah it, it, it didn't create cool. any discomfort on the set for you. And there's one case where she is is visibly menaced by this, you know, this sociopathic dude who the, who is the your arch enemy here. And that's that's pretty emotional. Was was any of that difficult for you or her or the crew because you had this relationship? Dave, I'm not gonna
4: lie. There was so much going on. I think it was by and large just a wonderful experience, not only for us but for the crew. I think it. It was a lovely atmosphere and having young people on the set, in this case, my daughter, who's never really done this, everything was a thrill. I mean, she, she would be like, dad, I'm, I'm getting picked up in a van tomorrow with the other actors. And I'd be like, "Yes, yeah, so what? And she's like, no, it's so exciting. <laughs> everything was so, <laughs> everything was so exciting, you know, call sheet was exciting, um, fittings were exciting uh EPK you know the electric press kit interviews she couldn't wait i'm like i was like i felt bad i'm always trying to get out of those so that was really refreshing and uh you know quite frankly i was really proud of her she worked uh really hard it was fun to watch how hard she worked and how fun she was having doing the work and then there was the loaded part, which is, you know, I'm executive producer. I've, um, I have I've a lot invested in this thing. I'm guilty of giving actors notes. There is one actor on the set who will actually say to my face, she doesn't want to hear it. <laughs> it makes me think maybe the other actors want to say that. Uh, you know, your, your kid will tell you... Uh, what other people won't, you know? Um, really, it's a, it's she really,
1: she she didn't yeah. like the direction she was getting. Huh.
4: You no, know, there's just time. She's my daughter. She's like, Dad, no, stop it. And I'm like, wait, you can't tell me that. I'm the, I'm the star of the show. Uh, you know, it's it's really a wild experience, and uh, as fun as acting is, and and you know, at this point in my life, it's kind of fun and games for me. There's a great deal of pressure on a set. Clocks ticking you need to get this. We we need to get this moment and seeing your teenage kid in that situation, you know, you feel as a parent, you just want us to kind of, you know, there's this instinct to step in and, and try to help and manage you know, it. Yeah. 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 To manage it. Okay. So, and at the same time, you're like, but we do need this take. <laughs> so <laughs> you know, step up girl, let's go. Um, uh, you know, there's a lot going on. It was very special. It was, it was really a special experience. And,
1: um, yeah, I hope I get another opportunity. My guest is Timothy Oliphant. He plays Marshall Raylan Givens in the revival of the series Justified, titled Justified City Primeval. It airs Tuesday nights on FX. We recorded our interview before the actor's strike began. I'm Dave Davies. and This is Fresh Air Weekend.
3: This message comes from NPR sponsor Redfin.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
6: The news can
0: be disorienting, and it can be really hard to remember how we got here. That's why we started the Throughline podcast. Every week, we take you on a cinematic trip into the past to better understand the present. Listen now to the Throughline podcast from NPR. This
1: is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Dave Davies. Let's get back to my interview with Timothy Oliphant. He plays Deputy U.S. Marshal Raylan Givens in the revival of the series Justified. It's titled Justified City Primeval. We recorded our interview before the actor's strike began. It is fun to hear you be funny after these intense roles where you play lawman. Um, And I I thought we'd listen to a clip from an appearance you made on Curb Your Enthusiasm, the Larry David vehicle. Um, This episode is where Larry and some of the regulars in the show are flying to Cabo for a destination wedding. Your character, Mickey, is the groom. And everybody's staying in a really nice resort. And in this scene, Larry David shows up at your room kind of a little late at night. And he has spent the day noticing that everyone seems to have gotten a nicer room than he did. But he's coming to you because uh, due to some classic Larry plot twist, he had to come without his luggage. And so he doesn't have a toothbrush. And so he's knocking on your door to see if you can help. Let's listen.
4: Okay, boss, Larry
5: oh my god are you kidding are you kidding me yeah not bad huh no b- this is unbelievable how's your room it stinks no yes it was supposed to be great it's not great i said to you guys
4: the rooms are great you're gonna love them yeah i know
5: oh. i know but my room's not great at all everybody's got a better room i'm gonna talk to somebody so what you just think this is some kind of uh accident that i have a, a bad room oh come on larry come
4: on Make it
5: like that what's what's going on oh hey hey, Sasha congratulations it's late she's not wrong yeah it's it's a, it is late um do you happen to have an extra toothbrush by any chance we do have an extra toothbrush you have an extra toothbrush fantastic I can't believe it that's so great I'm sorry I misspoke it's for us w- what do you mean I have an emergency it's an emergency I don't have a toothbrush that's your emergency. This is for case we have an emergency. You're not going to have an emergency. What makes you think you're going to have a toothbrush emergency? Look no. at you. You're having an emergency right Mine's now. Mine's a fluke. You have, it's a fluke This whole emergency. thing makes me nervous, Larry. It's a fluke emergency. A toothbrush emergencies It's one in a
4: million. You're probably right. I won't have a toothbrush emergency. And you know why I know that? Because I have
1: a <laughs> extra toothbrush. <laughs> Our guest, Timothy Oliphant, on Curb Your Enthusiasm. T- t- yeah. Tell us a little about the experience. I mean, is... is is it ad libbed? Is it all lines? What's the experience working on a scene like that? So there's an arguing? outline.
4: It's the best. There's an outline. You show up on that particular day. You, you show up. We're in at this ho- beautiful hotel and down at the, by the on the beach, and uh, we have a little sh- quick huddle. Jeff Schaefer um, co runs the show with Larry. Is was directing, and we we huddled up, and he says, "Okay, they read what the scene is." Larry shows up. He's upset cuz everybody's room is better than his room. And then he need and he you say why are you here and he says he needs a toothbrush. You tell him you have one but he can't have it. All right, let's go. And then you start shooting. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> That's literally it. You the next thing that happens is they pick up the cameras and they've already marked it and you just start shooting and it's uh couldn't be more fun.
1: Did you do several takes?
4: You know, Jeff will say, "Look, this first take might be seven, eight minutes long. Don't worry, and it might not be funny at all. Don't worry about it. We'll just, we'll, you'll kind of, we'll just do it again and just narrow it down, and you know, we'll just find it. And then usually every take, you just find a little something, a little gem." that they like you know little accidents happen you know I like you know we like when you say isn't it great your room's not great the more you can say the word great we like that you know so there's a lot of isn't this great that's great yours isn't great no they said they'd be great and (laughs) it's kind of the tone of the show you know Somewhere, as I recall, somebody mentioned toothbrush emergency as if that was a thing. <laughs> and then, you know, oh, well, we like that. You know, Lean into the toothbrush emergency. Try to, and you just kind of discovered as you go. You shoot way more than you end up using, but it goes quick. And Larry's a very generous laugher. So it was, it was a very, and I am too. So we spent a lot of time uh, with la- two people laughing, totally unusable. And, That's uh, what I
1: was going to ask. If you broke up a lot, yeah.
4: Oh my God, I'm terrible. I'm the worst. I laugh at my own jokes. Um, you know, it's not proper behavior. <laughs> um,
1: you know, when you earlier when we were talking, you were talking about, you know, studying the craft of acting, and and I think you said something about kind of the the drama and comedy are kind of the same thing they're somehow connected. I I was just thinking because, you know, the the role in Deadwood is so serious uh, most of the time.
4: It's all a comedy though. I mean, I know it's there's no difference, you know, uh justified I think of it as a comedy. I I if I'm engaged with the writers in the back and forth, as far as I'm concerned, we're writing jokes. We're writing you know, the nature of drama is two guys walk into a bar, right? And then there's a rug pull. That's that's what Elmore is. That's what our show was. You're just looking for the rug pull. You're looking for taking it a direction you didn't see coming. You're looking for what is both totally unexpected but yet inevitable. And that's the nature of a joke. So... You know, even in Deadwood, as we went along and, uh, you know, my shoulders started to drop below my ears. You know, I'm always looking for—there's comedy there. David's writing's really funny. I mean, it's just tone after that. It's just finding a tone. That's what shifts. Anyway, that's what I'm selling. I don't know if you're buying it. That's (laughs) my— That's my—I'm sticking to that. There's no difference between drama and comedy. It's all the same thing.
1: Timothy Oliphant plays Marshall Raylan Givens in the revival of the series Justified. It's called Justified City Primeval. It airs Tuesday nights on FX. We recorded our interview before the actor's strike began. Fresh Air's co-host Tanya Mosley has our next interview. I'll let her introduce it.
2: By the time writer Donovan X. Ramsey was about four or five, he'd learned a word that could stop people in their tracks, a slur that could win an argument or put an end to a bully's wrath. The term was crackhead, and growing up in the 90s, they were seen as pariahs, both feared and ignored. Who are these people besides addicts, Ramsey's young mind wondered, and what led them to crack cocaine in the first place? Decades later, Donovan X. Ramsey examines the destruction of the crack cocaine era through the experiences of addicts, drug dealers, families, and community members. His new book is called When Crack Was King, A People's History of a Misunderstood Era. Donovan X. Ramsey is a journalist, an author whose work has appeared in The New York Times, The Atlantic, GQ, Ebony, and Essence. He's been a staff reporter at the Los Angeles Times, News One, and The Grio, and has served as an editor at the Marshall Project and Complex. Donovan, welcome to Fresh Air.
6: Hey, Tanya. Thank you so much for having me.
2: So you start off this book writing about a woman named Michelle, who was a crack addict who lived down the street from you growing up in Columbus, Ohio. And you know, this story is so familiar to me and really anyone who grew up in a city ravaged by the crack cocaine epidemic. Everybody seemed to have a Michelle on their block, which kind of makes it surprising that a book like this hadn't been written already. Why did you want to write about it now?
6: Yeah. um, I wanted to write this book for lots of big, grand reasons that have to do with, you know, understanding our criminal justice system or that have to do with you know, trying to kind of set the record straight about the period. But really, I also just wanted to get to know this kind of mythical figure, Michelle from down the street, better. Um, Hmm. I remember, you know, my mom, you know, kind of whispering on the phone to her girlfriend, you know, dragging that um, house phone with the long cord room to room. Mm -hmm. And, you know, complaining about this woman down the street that had people coming in and out of her house at all hours. Or, you know, sometimes people would come knocking on our door thinking that they were, you know, looking for Michelle and thinking that maybe she lived there. And that was quite, you know, scary and disturbing to my mom, who was a young single mom. And, um, you know, but also at night, you know, I, I would lay in bed and like clockwork, you know, once Michelle got to, you know, her her activities, she would always put on uh, a Patty LaBelle record. And she would play the song, If Only You Knew, on a loop. Mm. And, you know, the lyrics are, like, seared in my head. You know, Patty's like, um, you know, you don't even suspect could probably care less about the changes I'm going through. And, you know, in my little, you know, five-year-old heart, I could tell that she was really in pain. Mm. And, you know, as, like, time went on and she really disappeared from our neighborhood, I just never stopped wondering about what exactly it was that she was going through.
2: You know, most people of a certain age know this already, but maybe we should first explain what crack actually is. There's this misconception that crack and cocaine are actually different.
6: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, crack is a drug. It's really a substance that completely upended our society for a while. It, you know, launched Um, you know, a new phase in the war on drugs. It created lots of myths and, you know, stereotypes about Black people in urban centers. But it is no different from powdered cocaine, which has, you know, existed um, for really time memorial, this idea of um, taking something like coca leaves and, you know, ingesting it to get a sort of uh, stimulant experience. But um, its original name was Freebase, Mm -hmm. And that was a chemical term used, the process of making it smokable, which is separating the base of the cocaine compound from its other elements, which then makes it smokable. Um, Mm -hmm. That sounds kind of scientific and, (laughs) you know, and kind of hard to wrap your mind around. But I would liken it for anybody that has, you know, experimented with marijuana. It's like the difference between eating an edible or smoking a joint. That yeah, it's the same the,
2: thing. It's the manner, right?
6: Exactly. It's 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 the same exact substance, you know, but it's a different process and it, you know, your body breaks it down differently, which then spurred different uh, patterns of use. So someone mm. who is smoking crack gets a very intense cocaine high that but it's short-lived, which means that it's more likely something that you would binge than powder cocaine.
2: Some of what you want it to get answers to are first, the facts of the crack epidemic, free of the stigma and the speculation around it. There's so much of that. And two, who we were, meaning the black community before crack. Was that a challenge for you to parse it out for yourself?
6: It was. I mean, I think, you know, and I'm sure that maybe you can relate to this, but as a black journalist, you know, you all, and especially if you do work around black communities, they are the questions that you know, you know, the sort of average reader in middle America, you know, whatever, you know, whoever that is, uh, the things that they want answered, but also the questions that you have for yourself. And for me being a, a Black man who was born in 1987, the crack epidemic predates me, right? Like I've never existed in a world where crack didn't exist. So I had this real kind of deep yearning to understand who we were before and to fill in what felt like a gap in between the civil rights movement that we, you know, hear so much about and where we are today. And the, and the crack epidemic seemed like that missing link, right? How do you go from the highs of the March on Washington to, you know, Freddie Gray being, you know, tossed around in the back of a police transport vehicle? How do yeah. you go from the highs of, you know, um, the Voting Rights Act to so much of the other devastation that we see today in the system that we have? And um, and the crack epidemic was that missing link.
2: Did you feel that disconnect growing up, too? Because I, I think I felt that way, too. You put language to it. But you were learning all about these wonderful things that happened, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act. It all seemed so very Kumbaya-like in the late 60s, early 70s. And then you're sitting right in the thick of the crack cocaine epidemic and seeing all of this devastation around you. Was that kind of going through your mind even growing up and learning about the history?
6: It was. I mean, it, it... (laughs) it's so hard to put this into words, but like when you're like a black child in America, you're getting lots of mixed messages. You're getting an official history that has been sanitized completely of um, uh, any sort of dissident, you know, perspectives that you know exist within your community, right? So for every Martin Luther King Jr., there is a Malcolm X in your neighborhood. You know, when you go to the barbershop, there are people who are like, let's, you know, cast our bucket down where we stand and and work hard and you know figure out a way to make our lives better in this capitalist system and there are the guys that are like let's let's burn it all down <laughs> you know mm-hmm. and um and and they're not all represented in the history that you get beyond that when it came to something like what was happening with crack i could never really get straight answers so uh, you know, when I say that what I mean is that the the news presented super predators and crack babies and crackheads and crack houses and this um, you know, uh, apocalyptic view of neighborhoods like mine. And then when I actually walked around the neighborhood, you know, I saw people working hard. I saw a mix of working class and poor and middle class black people. Um you know, I saw lots of different perspectives on what was happening. Um, I should also note, though, that people didn't necessarily explain anything to me, you know, Mm -hmm. that I was witnessing, but my mother, you know, God God bless her, really uh, shielded my sisters and I and and protected us from what was happening. You know, her favorite um, thing to say was, you know, mind your business, (laughs) (laughs) you know, turn your head, Uh, you know, something was happening that, you know, wasn't Um, you know, didn't directly involve us. It was kind of just keep your head down.
1: Donovan X. Ramsey speaking with Tanya Mosley. Ramsey is the author of the new book, When Crack Was King, A People's History of a
0: Misunderstood
1: Era. We'll hear more of their conversation after a break. I'm Dave Davies, and this is Fresh Air Weekend.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mattress Firm. How do you sleep at night? Mattress Firm can help anyone sleep at night. Mattress Firm's sleep experts receive 200-plus hours of training annually to help you get your best rest. Upgrade your sleep with a tempur mattress made with a one-of-a-kind, infinitely adaptable temper material for exceptional support to help alleviate aches and pains. Get matched at Mattress Firm's Memorial Day Sale and sleep at night.
3: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mattress Firm. How do you sleep at night? No matter what might be keeping you up, Mattress Firm can help anyone sleep. Mattress Firm will find you the right mattress from a wide selection of top brands at every budget. Plus, if you see a lower price somewhere else, they'll match it up to 120 nights with their low price guarantee. Get matched at Mattress Firm's Memorial Day sale and sleep at night. Restrictions apply. See mattressfirm.com or store for details.
1: This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Dave Davies. Let's get back to Tanya Mosley's interview with Donovan X. Ramsey, author of the new book, When Crack Was King, A People's History of a Misunderstood Era.
2: There are several conspiracy theories about how crack cocaine actually made its way into black communities. And the most enduring theory is that the government had something to do with it. You actually investigated and interrogated this idea. And what did you find?
6: You know, in Black communities, you know, as you're growing up, people will tell you crack was dropped off in our neighborhoods to disrupt them. That, you know, to the average Black person, it seems, you know, that crack was a mystery where it came from. Why us? You know, why did this happen to us in this way? I should start by saying, right, that it didn't just happen to us. Like anything else in American life, that that the majority of the folks that used crack were white, because the majority of Americans are white, but that Black and Latino folks did use it at disproportionate rates. And our neighborhoods became sites where it was sold. So then you had another level of disruption beyond the use in terms of the dealing and then the violence that accompanied the dealing and ultimately the policing that was a response to it. So first, I want to say that.
2: Right. But there was this time period where especially during the Reagan era, we had already been introduced to the war on drugs from the Nixon administration. Yeah. But then there is um, really the solidifying of that through the Reagan era. And so at the same time as we are receiving messages and of cracking down on drugs and drug use, um, we were also seeing this infiltration of crack cocaine in communities of color. You actually found that there was kind of a couple of things that were happening at the same time, not exactly that it was purposely left in black or brought to black communities, but that there was kind of a turning away.
6: Yeah, that's the perfect way to put it. Is that the government in the '80s was aware that there was, re- I mean, really just tons of cocaine being shipped into the United States from, you know, South and Central America, and we had ongoing efforts in South and Central America in countries like Nicaragua where we wanted to support rebels um, known as Contras in Nicaragua to overthrow their government, that that was in our, you know, political interest. But Congress would not allow the U.S. government to fund a war in another country. So the U.S. government got creative, and, you know, this is well documented through um, programs to actually deliver weapons to the Contras. And when that was no longer... Uh, Feasible when that became exposed through um, Ali North and the whole Iran-Contra affair, um, that we just allowed them to smuggle drugs. And a lot of those drugs, cocaine, ended up in the United States. And, um, you know, this has been investigated by uh, a commission led by John Kerry, by efforts led by Maxine Waters. You know, it's well documented through um, reporting at the time that there were lots of Contras that were selling cocaine to dealers in the United States. And mm-hmm. a lot of it ended up in cities on the West Coast, in, in Oakland, in, in Los Angeles.
2: But then how cocaine then turned into crack was kind of a story of ingenuity.
6: It was. You know, like, anytime there's a glut of a substance or a commodity, right, that's, like, available, people start experimenting with, you know, other ways to consume and distribute it, and crack was no different, Um, I, you know, did tons of interviewing and I was able to come up with, you know, about five or six different sources that told me the stories of these um, students at Berkeley who were chemistry students that were just cocaine enthusiasts and they were trying to figure out different ways to consume it. And they really popularized, you know, Freebase in their community. And it became so popular that there was a book that was published that, you can actually find on eBay and Amazon called The Pleasures of Cocaine, and it included the recipe for how to create free-based cocaine, not with volatile chemicals like ether or, you know, alcohol, but with water and baking soda. Um, and once that book got around and it spread to different drug enthusiasts in different cities, and then it ultimately made its way to, um, you know, dealers, what, what it created was a super— cheap, accessible way of getting what had been a very glamorous drug um, into the world. And it just spread like wildfire. I should say on this question, right, of like a conspiracy, what I ultimately determined is that there was no group of, you know, shadowy figures that sat in a room and said, here's how we can destroy Black communities, at least not in the 80s. Um, That the reality is that the way that Black communities are situated, what it means to be Black in this society is to be hit first and worst. That
2: like the COVID pandemic, which we saw. Yeah.
6: Exactly. Like, like COVID, like, like Katrina, like, like any other disaster that, you know, Blackness is, you know, more than just like this racial category and about identity. It's about where you are positioned in terms of harm in a society. So if blackness is, you know, blackness is this buffer that allows whiteness to be an area for for safety and for comfort. So when something like crack becomes, you know, widely available and a problem, we will be hit first and worst. And that's exactly what happened. To make matters worse, the government decided, you know, or at least politicians decided that they wanted to build careers on then criminalizing, you know, this sort of public health emergency And that's the part that I think really gets to ill intent and um, racist ideas and efforts to really be disruptive was not necessarily the drug epidemic, but the response to it.
2: At first, when crack cocaine made its way to the streets, it felt kind of like, as you put it, a gold rush for black communities, a chance for people who lived in poverty to actually gain some wealth to get rich. What did that look like?
6: I hadn't really considered this when I set out to write the book because, you know, in my family drug dealers had really kind of always been villainized. You know, even though I had relatives that sold drugs, we, you know, that there was distance between, you know, at least, you know, my my mom and sisters and and me and them. And you know what it looked like for the average usually a young man, someone like Sean McRae, who I write about in my book, is that you saw people who had walked holes in their shoes, whose, you know, families struggled to pay the rent, be able to provide, you know, basic necessities, to have some, you know, piece of what maybe felt like the American dream. Not most drug dealers got rich, right? That, like, not most were kingpins, Most were able... Media
2: portrayed them as these really wealthy guys who lived in these big homes, lots of cars, lots of stacks of money.
6: Exactly. Or as super predators who were, you know, out to get kids hooked on drugs and who were eager to get into gun battles in the middle of streets, that most of them were terrified for their lives. But it was really the only way that they could make money in a period where unemployment was so high and, you know, Black youth unemployment was was even higher. And anybody that's been a, a Black teenager trying to find a job understands mm-hmm. just how frustrating that can be. And you know, how kids want things more than anybody else.
2: I was actually really struck by something you wrote about the media that we were consuming in the early 80s, especially that played a part in Black kids' desire and imagination about wealth. You write, Popular culture was obsessed with wealth and upward mobility. Black children were presented almost exclusively with media that encouraged them to transcend the ghetto and reach toward whiteness. And the drug trade was one way to do that. But what got me was your astute observation about the entertainment we were consuming at the time. So shows like Different Strokes and Give Me a Break and Benson. I had never really put that together, what those shows were actually setting the scene for in our desires.
6: Oh, it's so wild to look back on because, I mean, none of it would fly today, but, you know, it was a period where in television, basically, it's just show after show of Black person being snatched out of the ghetto and then moving in with a white family, whether it's Webster or uh, Different Strokes or Give Me a Break and, um, I mean, really one after the other. Uh, Mm. Even the Jeffersons, right, is about moving on up. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you are a black kid growing up in the ghetto, what looks like a real healthy American life is so far away and so unattainable. And then overnight, there's this substance now that's available that you can sell and you'll make more money than you could have ever imagined.
2: One of the biggest instances of misinformation spread by mainstream media during that time was the myth of the crack baby. I actually remember my ninth grade algebra teacher talking almost every week about how he had to retire within a few years because that's when the crack babies would be entering high school. I mean, we've talked about this quite a bit over the years, but we now know that the fears about black babies never really, um, black crack babies never really materialized. But you write about how that myth impacted all black children, including you, in your education growing up.
6: Absolutely. that um, a researcher named Ira Chasnov in Chicago did one study of a handful of uh, black mothers who were cocaine users. And what he found um, after those uh, mothers had, had given birth, was that um, many of their babies had things like tremors and low birth weight, and they sort of um, struggled to meet benchmarks, you know, in their infancy. And from that, he published a report about cocaine-exposed babies that then launched what became this crack baby notion. And, you know, lots of reporting was done about these irredeemable babies, mostly Black and Latino children, and how they were going to be a huge weight on society, that they wouldn't sort of never be able to, um, come back from, from what their mothers had done to them. Charles Krautheimer, um, a columnist who was writing for the Post at the time said that, that death would have been more suitable for these babies than to actually live. Mm -hmm. And what we've seen, um, through the research, um, longitudinal studies of, of cocaine exposed babies was that one, the, Symptoms that Chasnov were seeing were actually related to premature birth that um, that the effect of cocaine is that it can cause complications that then lead to that lead to premature birth, and that the tremors and the developmental things that were being seen in infancy were actually associated with the babies being born early and not necessarily with the cocaine exposure and then you know decades later there is no measurable difference between those children and and their counterparts children born at the same time raised in the same areas you know with the same sort of resources um so i say that to say that the crack baby myth has been debunked
2: debunked but yeah
6: for me as a black child growing up in the 80s and 90s i was treated as though i was a suspect of of you know of of being a crack baby that You know, the ways that teachers um, treated me and and really other um, black children in in my classes, mainly black boys, was as though there was something fundamentally wrong with us. That we needed to be maybe medicated to be able to be in class or that any um, challenge that we presented as students, whether it was talking too much, which was my problem, um, or you know, if it was not being able to sit still, that that was evidence that something was wrong with us.
2: Donovan, how did the crack epidemic end?
6: You know, the crack epidemic ended, um, you know, not because the drug warriors rode in on white horses or because Nancy Reagan said, just say no. The crack epidemic ended because the next cohort of young people who um, would have used crack looked around at their communities and saw the devastation and said, you know, not for me. Um, And I think that's a really important thing to underline is that, one, that that the crack epidemic is over. You know, we didn't celebrate that. So let's celebrate the fact that the crack epidemic is over. Let's celebrate the fact that we survived it Without a whole lot of intervention from the government, and that it was young people who who made the decision to not continue the trend, um, you know. And that's not according to me. That's according to research by the Department of Justice, where they surveyed um, the the hardest hit cities around the country and interviewed young people and said, essentially, you know, why why aren't you doing crack? And mm-hmm. they said, you know, it's it it. It, that Like, that whole world is too scary. Mm-hmm. Um, so what you see, you know, when you look at the stats is a rise in crack use starting about 1982, 1983. Um, it completely takes off about 1987. It then um, plateaus between 1990, which is really the hardest years of the crack epidemic, and 1992. And as a really interesting um, kind of aside... Um, you know, throughout my research, um, do, you know, writing and writing the book, I listened to a lot of hip hop at the time. Yeah. And I came across this, I mean, this litany of anti-crack messaging. Um, you know, Jane Stopped This Crazy Thing by MC Shan and Hey Young World by Slick Rick, um, Night of the Living Bassheads by public enemy. I mean song after song. Don't man by What N-Dope
2: about your man. mama's on crack rock? Your mama's that... on
6: crack rock by the by the boys I think. Yeah. Uh, an absolute wild song, right, where you have I mean in a really interesting way, right, like um young people from these communities giving messaging back to other young people from these communities. And I think it was more powerful than what Nancy Reagan was doing on Different Strokes. It had mm-hmm. it had more credibility. Um, you know, you also see it in the filmmaking of the time, what I would call kind of hip-hop filmmaking. Um, you know, films like uh, Boys in the Hood, um, I would even say Clockers. Jungle Fever. Jungle yep. Fever, right? Samuel L. Jackson as Gator and Jungle Fever scared the mess out of me. You know, he's mm-hmm. like stealing his mama's color TV to get high. Yep. Or uh, New Jack City, Chris Rock is pookie, yeah. you know. Um, and so then what you see is this decline in 1992, just a complete plummet where black and Latino youth are not using not only cocaine, but I mean, stop using hard drugs almost entirely. But during that year, you see a huge spike in marijuana use. Among those groups, and that happens to be—I just want to say—the year that Dr. Dre dropped the Chronic, mm. and so the which music is, is
2: so powerful.
6: Yes, it's so powerful. And you know, um, at the time, you know, rappers would say that they were just representing what was happening in the streets, and I always thought that was like a little bit of a cop out. I'm going to be honest. I was like, <laughs> you know, it—it it, it just sounded Why? too. Yeah, you know, it—it yeah. it, it just sounded too convenient, and I knew that there was you know, this mix, right, of of, of messaging. But what I will say is that despite the fact that there was some really unsavory, misogynistic mainly, violent uh, messaging in hip hop, the position on crack was consistent, which is that's not cool to do, and it's having a terrible effect in our community.
2: Well, Donovan X. Ramsey, thank you so much
6: Thank you, Tanya. It's been such a pleasure.
1: Donovan X. Ramsey is the author of the new book, When Crack Was King, A People's History of a Misunderstood Era. He spoke with Fresh Air's co-host, Tanya Mosley.
6: Yo, Jay! Wait!
1: Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. For Terry Gross and Tanya Mosley, I'm Dave Davies.
0: This message comes from Schwab. It's easy to invest in ideas you believe in with Schwab Investing Themes, like online music and videos, artificial intelligence, and electric vehicles. Choose from over 40 customizable themes. More at schwab.com.
3: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath Learning Format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.
6: What does it sound like to record an album inside a jail? On the documentary podcast Track Change, you'll hear four men make music inside Richmond City Jail and hear how they're trying to break free from a cycle of addiction and incarceration.
0: Been so long since I've
6: been free. Listen to Track Change from Narratively and VPM, part of the NPR Network.